Hello and welcome to a new edition of the ICM Next Collaboration Podcast. My name is Laura Borgstedt and I'm a Next Committee member from Munich, Germany. Today it is my pleasure to talk with Professor Daryl Abrams about his newspaper in ICM. Professor Abrams is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. His main clinical and research interests involve various forms of cardiopulmonary failure. Welcome, Professor Abrams. Thank you very much for having me. Your recent narrative review in ICM is called Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation in Adults, Evidence and Implications. Would you like to tell us more about it? Sure, thank you. Um, so it's a narrative review, uh, basically giving us um, an overview of where ECPR stands at the current time. Um, you know, it's come a long way since its origins in the 1960s, and there's been a lot of advances in technology. There's been a lot of growth in the field. There's many more cases of ECPR being performed now than there were in the past. Um, the, the growth is nearly exponential. And I think this review is meant to not only um, look at where the, the current state of the data is, but uh, offer a bit of caution towards the increased expansion of ECPR when we don't still necessarily have the solutions for which are the perfect patients to perform it in, and um, the, the enormous amount of resources that have to go into every eCPR case, let alone coordination of eCPR programs um, across healthcare systems and within communities. So um, there's been a, a, a couple of very exciting uh, recent studies completed, uh, the ARREST trial um, out of uh, Minnesota, and a, a trial that we could talk a little more about called the Prague OHCA trial, which was completed and presented earlier in 2021 um, and is still undergoing uh, peer review and hopefully will be published shortly, um, both of which offer great promise for uh, improved outcomes with eCPR and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, um, but uh, still demonstrate the, uh, the, the level of coordination that's necessary to achieve such good outcomes. Thank you. So as you said, the first report of successful eCPR was published in uh, the 60s and recently the randomized controlled trials you talked about showed a potential survival benefit with eCPR. Um, so what do you think are the most important advances in eCPR? You know, certainly since, since its origins and since it was first attempted, um, it now has become, you know, come to be known as what it is as extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Uh, the technological advances obviously are, are uh, the things that come to mind first are at the forefront where just the, the cannulas, the pumps, the, the circuits in general, the um, you know the fact that it's more biocompatible, able to be uh, performed with uh, lower levels of anticoagulation, better hemocompatibility, are are things that have allowed ECMO in general and ECTR more specifically to expand and be more successful. Um, but there have been a lot of uh, you know developments in terms of patient selection, uh, the, the trials that that I previously mentioned, where we're not necessarily doing it indiscriminately across uh, broad populations, but starting to be more selective about which patients we should try it in, um, trying to identify the, the patient level factors that are, are gonna offer the greatest uh, likelihood of benefit. So I think the technology is much further along than it was in the past, um, offering better outcomes purely from a reduction in risks from the procedure itself. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning uh, that's certainly important for CPR outcomes in general and eCPR more specifically are the post-arrest management strategies that have 
uh, been developed over the last several decades. So uh, targeted temperature management, avoiding hyperthermia, um, PCI for those who are eligible who have um, uh, coronary diseases, the etiology of their cardiac arrest. These are our fundamental management strategies post-arrest to improve outcomes, and in some ways can be facilitated by eCPR, by stabilizing the patient rather than having ongoing chest compressions and getting them to the cath lab, um, being able to control temperature through the circuit itself. So already there are, are strategies that uh, it's really becomes a, a package of interventions in eCPR, not just cannulation itself and uh, um, reinstitution of circulation, but the post-arrest management strategies in combination, which um, have been shown to uh, improve outcomes in cardiac arrest in general. Thank you. So um, in your paper, you say um, often the most challenging issue during evaluation for ECPAR is determining the patient's likelihood of neurological recovery. And um, taking that into account and from an ethical point of view, do you think we're already able to predict who's the patient who will benefit the most from ECPR? I think that that still remains the most challenging aspect of eCPR, because even if we can improve outcomes and mortality and neurologically intact mortality uh, or functionally intact uh, survival, I should say, um, is really the most important consideration, not just survival if ne they're neurologically devastated, but where they actually have favorable functional and, and neurological outcomes. Um, you know, we can improve the, let's say we can improve that uh, functionally intact survival from 15% to 33% or maybe 40% or maybe a little bit higher if we're really selective, that leaves a whole lot of other patients that we've attempted resuscitation in with eCPR who may, may die or may survive, but with neurological devastation. And so it's certainly becomes even, it's not like we're improving mortality at 80, 90% or survival to 80, 90%. Um, so in that context, we wanna be fairly selective so that we have, we have the most favorable outcomes, but you certainly don't wanna miss the cases by being too selective where we could have had favorable outcomes but chose not to institute it. So there are certain factors that study after study and more selected for in trials, making it difficult necessarily to distinguish, but certainly in retrospective studies and observational data, younger age has consistently portended a better outcome. Uh, a shockable rhythm suggesting a, a cardiac etiology to the arrest, um, uh, sh very short or very or minimal to no no flow time, meaning it's basically a witness arrest, uh, shortening the, the low flow time as much as possible, which is the conventional mechanical CPR until eCPR can be instituted, are all factors that have fairly consistently, as one might expect, um, been associated with more favorable outcomes. Interestingly, because it takes time to institute eCPR when you choose to do it. And certainly the earlier you identify that patient, the earlier you call for, for ECMO, the shorter all of those, the no flow and low flow times will be. It takes time to actually perform eCPR, cannulate the patient um, and get them on circuit. So what's interesting is even though historically we'd say, you know, a 60 minute low flow time is, is gonna portend a poor outcome, the outcomes in these trials where the low flow time has been on average upwards of 60 minutes and, and certainly shorter is better, but can be substantial. Once they're on ECMO, they actually may still have quite favorable outcomes. So calling for early when you can identify those patients early will definitely help. But 
just because it took time to institute, it doesn't mean they're going to have a poor outcome. Um, I think, though, if, if you just continued conventional CPR for that type of duration, you, one would expect outcomes to still be poor. Um, so what, what it comes down to is, is identifying the patients. And in order to do that, you really have to take a step back and say, what kind of program do we want to run? How are we going to identify these patients globally and plan all of this ahead of time so that you're not necessarily having to make a lot uh, more, more complicated decisions in the moment, but you already have laid out a framework of the types of patients you're considering, having a program in place that can be activated quickly to be able to identify these patients promptly and institute eCPR. The, the, mo the most successful programs have this type of coordinated program well-established in advance rather than kind of a haphazard, you know, one-off of doing eCPR here and there. Um, because what it in, the, the problem with doing it indiscriminately or not planning well ahead of time, and even if you have the best planning, you may still end up with patients who have indeterminate or poor neurological outcomes, is you create this potential large population, potentially, if you really expand its use, of, of patients with poor outcomes. Um, and not necessarily all of them will, will die. Some of them will just have uh, poor neurological outcomes with prolonged survival. And it creates a no more an ethical problem necessarily than other life-sustaining therapies we institute all the time where patients are sustained and required to maintain to be maintained in the ICU because of their dependence on vasopressors or invasive mechanical ventilation. But it is a more sophisticated and more resource-intensive therapy. And whereas we can maybe bridge people on a ventilator to other facilities outside of the hospital, these patients are necessarily stuck in the ICU and maybe don't have, have very little to no intrinsic cardiac function, but ECMO is literally maintaining their circulation. So when those patients are necessarily considered dead, um, whether we have to redefine death based on the fact that ECMO is keeping them alive and without it, they would otherwise uh, not be able to survive. There are certain unique ethical uh, dilemmas that, that may be encountered more with eCPR than even some of our traditional life-sustaining therapies. And again, how many of these cases we're encountering will depend in large part on how quickly we expand eCPR and how well we define our patient population to to perform it in. And even under the best circumstances, we're going to encounter some of these dilemmas. Mm -hmm. Thank you for this insightful answer. So um, do you have any um, further advice for our listeners as to um, when to think of eCPR or as to when to maybe um, do not initiate eCPR? So I, I think, you know, under uh, kind of which clinical circumstances is, is one aspect which I'll, I'll address, and then the, the larger picture. Um, you know, the, the outcomes as shown in observational studies, the, 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 the most recent trials that we're discussing, the arrest trial and the FOG-OHCA trial, are out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But cons fairly consistently, the outcomes for in-hospital cardiac arrest undergoing eCPR have been better than out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, because these patients are often have witnessed cardiac arrest. It's anticipated if they're going to have an arrest, there's immediate response by, by providers in the hospital. Um, and there's more known about the patient, so you can be more discriminant and say, this patient we know is not going to have a good outcome, or we do not anticipate that, we're not going to institute eCPR, and we can, be, we can more carefully select patients by knowing a lot more about them. 
the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patient is kind of an unknown, um, and you assume there's more likely a cardiac etiology, and maybe you can get them to the cath lab and, and revascularize them, but there's a lot more of, of the unknown for those patients. So in hospital cardiac arrest, I doubt we will see much in the way of prospective randomized controlled trials, um, but the eCPR can be instituted more rapidly, especially in hospital with, a, with an established program. So from a clinical perspective, those patients tend to do better. Um, the data that's emerging from these trials suggests that we, in a very well-coordinated system, which again, I will emphasize, takes a lot of resources and a lot of planning um, across large healthcare systems between emergency medical services and receiving hospitals with community input, with governmental input and, and uh, endorsement and support. So I think who we consider and, and when to consider it, again, should be a conversation that starts way earlier than the patient in front of you in cardiac arrest. And it should be thought of as what kind of program are we gonna establish? What type of patients do we wanna include? Establishing well-defined inclusion and exclusion criteria. And it's not gonna be perfect. But I think having those criteria established in the beginning will make it easier to decide which patients are not appropriate. Maybe a certain age cutoff, certain comorbidities, certain type of rhythms when identified, certain duration of no flow or low flow time, unwitnessed arrests where the, the downtime is, is unknown are maybe low hanging fruit for the type of exclusion criteria you can establish right away. Then with the appropriate inclusion criteria, we're, it's not going to be perfect. You're going to definitely, um, you're not going to have 100% survival, but I think we can maximize our survival by establishing those criteria early on. And then um, really just having a system where the response can be as quick as possible. What's interesting and what's, what's kind of emerging, which is also discussed in, in this narrative review of ours, is the whole concept of pre-hospital eCPR, uh, as opposed to in-hospital in the emergency room when the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest arrives. That's very controversial. The amount of resources in hospital are substantial. You can imagine what the kind of resources would be to deploy eCPR in the field and actually cannulate in the field. A couple of studies have demonstrated feasibility. Um, there, are, there are other prospective studies, pilot studies, and then with, with the um, intention of performing larger trials of performing eCPR, uh, for example, um, in certain areas within London. Um, and this has also been demonstrated in Paris. And interestingly, in some very large uh, observational study out of France, even though there was no difference in the use of eCPR versus conventional CPR globally, there was a signal that pre-hospital eCPR actually performed better than in-hospital CPR, uh, eCPR. But one can imagine that this is very difficult to coordinate, uh, to identify the patient in the field, deploy the team uh, in large metropolitan areas, you have to have enough cases. You have to be. You have to, be able to respond in time. So, that's a that's an area that that really may get more developed. Um, but I we'd certainly offer a word of caution about doing anything like that on a on a larger scale until we have more evidence that it actually works and is worth the resource investment. Um, so for now, we would certainly advocate that if there's going to be a program, that it should be in well-established, high-volume centers that know what they're doing that have very well-defined in-hospital um, inclusion exclusion criteria and um, a well-coordinated system before we expand it to smaller hospitals, taking data from these phase two trials and assuming that that's gonna be applicable and have the same outcomes in less well-established systems. Yeah, thank you very much. So um, 
I think it's fair to say that this is a hot topic in um, intensive care medicine. I think um, it has been discussed over the last um, uh, 40, uh, 55 years. So I think there'll be uh, ongoing discussion about it. And I have to say, um, Professor Abrams, thank you very much for your time and expertise. Thank you for um, doing this podcast with us today. And um, I wish you a very nice day. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.